exciting. This is good. This is good. Hey, we are a church that believes. Pastor Jonathan reminded us of this this morning as we were gathering to pray. Your pastors, um, we're a church that believes we gain when we lose. And we have started a new campus and another church plant is in the, the works. And that has made room for the multiplication of the kingdom of God. And so we want to continue to encourage you to do the work of discipling people. Bring folks into the kingdom through preaching the gospel as the Spirit draws people and He brings people to life. You bring them here. Now there's room, right? It's uh, it's good. So we gain when we lose. And so we've sent off. We're preparing to send again. And even better, this fall, we'll have four new guys coming through the process of becoming pastors and church planters. And so how cool is that? That's because we gain when we lose. And so um, as God gives, we give away, right? So awesome, good stuff, and I'm thankful for that this morning. So make sure you continue to make disciples, bring those folks, and uh, continue to integrate them into the work of the kingdom, the community of the kingdom of God, which is the church. And who knows what God may do with that, right? How fun is that? Let's pray, and we're going to dive into Acts 8, 1 to 25. Father, for the glory of Jesus and the advancement of your kingdom... We pray now that you would do all that you have promised you would do through the preaching of your word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who takes truth and applies it in each of us as we sit here. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that work now. We ask you to knock down barriers that maybe we walked in with and maybe we have set up since we've gotten here. We pray you'd knock those down and you'd make us teachable. Pray that you would teach even in spite of me. We pray you would keep me from error. Pray that you would keep us from hearing anything that is not true. We pray against the evil one and the effects of the evil one. And Lord, we pray that you would win that battle for us so that we can hear and we can obey. So we pray you'd rule this time well for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 8, 1 to 25, kingdom exported to new frontiers. Kingdom export to new frontiers. Remember, the testimonies of the Lord are our delight, the psalmist says. So the, the stories of God's grace are a great delight to us. The Bible teaches us those stories, teach us how to walk. Romans remind us, Paul reminds us in Romans, those things are there to teach us, to instruct us. They were written for our instruction, right? And so we look to the testimonies of the Lord to see God's work in history, God's work in His people. And Acts is a historical narrative that shows us the testimonies of the Lord. As the Spirit of God empowered His church to make disciples from all nations. Remember, Acts 1.8 is our framework, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so that framework is the framework of the book of Acts because it is a chronicle, a historical narrative of that work of the Spirit of God empowering the church to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, now Samaria. And then we'll see it go to the end of the earth. And we'll end with an open-ended story of Paul in prison awaiting to be released that he may go preach in Spain. How cool is that, right? And so we're going to see Acts point us in that direction. So we're going to glean from Acts what God has done, what He is doing, and how it informs what we are to do as we move forward. Jesus told them, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. He didn't tell them exactly, with minute detail in Acts 1.8, how... 
the how-to would come about. Make sense? He didn't tell them how the how-to, right? You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to do it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. It's going to expand. The kingdom's going to expand. That's what's going to happen because I've told you to go, disciple the nations. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit that has been promised. And you will be my witnesses because that's the mission. It's what's going to happen. It's what people who have Holy Spirit do. They do the mission of Jesus. But he didn't tell them all the minute details of how that how-to of Acts 1-8 would come about. But he did tell them before his death, burial, and resurrection what to expect. So the methods of the kingdom were no surprise. No surprise whatsoever about what they were about to encounter. The Spirit was going to use difficulty. And He was going to use challenges to advance the kingdom to new frontiers. He was going to use normal, Holy Spirit-empowered people. We're going to see that here in Philip. He's going to confront spiritual strongholds. And He's going to break... Mend and fix a fallen culture that has barriers that exist between peoples that cannot exist in the kingdom of God. And by the way, that's the little outline of what we will cover this morning in Acts 8, 1 to 25. In order to lead us into our observations and our applications, I want you to listen to what Bob Roberts says about persecution and opposition. I don't know if you've noticed, but in Acts so far... There's been a great theme of difficulty, right? That's, that's not accidental. And I understand that is strange to our eyes and our ears and our senses. We have no concept. We even do strange things like equate somebody saying bad things about us to persecution. It's just not. It's just not. We're just soft. Because we live in Disneyland. And when a ride breaks down in Disneyland, we feel like we've been gypped. Right? And so when somebody calls us a bad name or looks at us funny or treats us differently because of something mildly spiritual, we have a tendency to feel spiritually slighted and as though the world is coming to an end. It's not. We live in Disneyland and when rides break, it's okay. However, and we'll hit this in just a moment, these testimonies of the Lord are not to fall on deaf ears where there's comfort. I think there's a prophetic moment for us as the church in the West, it's lying in front of us and opportunities to speak prophetically about the kingdom of God and our role and what may be coming our way. And to identify not, not, not only, and, and I don't hear this like demeaning the text, not only with, with what the text teaches us, but with what the rest of the global church is experiencing now. They, they don't live in Disneyland. Some of them don't know where their next meal is coming from. Some of them don't have health insurance, so all they have is prayer. And it works. It just does. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so the reality for us is we may be in God's good grace forced to a place where we really, really depend on Jesus alone. And that's not bad. 
Jesus is not a hard place to land. He is the place to land. And so, as we look at this text, I don't want it to be unfamiliar to us. So that when difficult things do happen, that we're taken by surprise and we don't know what to do. The testimonies of the Lord are delight. And they teach us how to walk. So in order to lead us into our observations of the text today, and we'll read through the text, not all at one time, we'll, we'll break it down by observation points and make application, and we'll read those sections of the text as we do that. I want you to hear uh, my spiritual dad, Bob Roberts, which some of the, by the way, some of you guys bought this book, we, we got a box of them, and we charged you much less than what you would pay for online for it. We're in this one again, and so it's called Lessons from the East. It looks like this. Some of you guys are reading it. Some of you guys who aren't should. It's a phenomenal read. I want you to listen to, to what, uh, what Bob says about difficulty and persecution and opposition. Particularly things learned from folks not in America. When we experience persecution or, or at least opposition, which really may be where we are and may be where we are headed... God accomplishes three important goals in our lives. One, the difficulty clarifies our beliefs, our passions, and loyalties. We can stop and ask ourselves, what do I really believe about God, about my purpose in life, and about the people who are harassing me? Do I really believe Jesus died on the cross for Muslims, gays, inner city black men, immigrants, and others who might easily be written off? Do I believe Jesus loves them as much as he loves me? Do I believe it enough to die for Jesus? To suffer for him? Or at least be inconvenienced for him? Pretty good questions. Number two, that's just number one, that opposition and difficulty clarifies. Number two, opposition purifies our hearts by burning off the impurities of selfishness, pride, and irrational fear. Heartache has a way of cutting through the surface layers of our lives to expose our true desires. Do we really want God and His kingdom more than anything else in the world? Number three. Struggles can propel multiplication in a congregation as hearts are opened for people who were formerly outside their comfort zones. Those are some phenomenal things to keep in mind as we look at the opposition that God brings on the church here for, I would argue, those three purposes. So what are we going to see in our text today? What are our observations? Observation number one. Acts 8, 1-4. to Persecution is a mobilizing instrument in God's providential hands. Now you know I'm wordy. There's no other way to be. Unless you're precise. And I'm not. I carpet bomb with words. Okay? Persecution is a mobilizing instrument in God's providential hands to export the kingdom rule of Jesus to new frontiers. 
Persecution, difficulty, opposition is a mobilizing instrument in God's providential hands to export the kingdom rule of Jesus to new frontiers. Listen to the text. Acts 8, 1-4. Now, you remember what happened last week? Stephen has prophetically held forth the truth and he's been killed for it by the religious elite. And we see introduced at the end of that narrative Saul who is leading the charge and he's overseeing the work. Acts 8.1 And Saul, who is in chapter 9 going to be transformed by the powerful Jesus in his gospel into Paul. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. That statement is huge. Come back in a moment. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, who's been scattered? The apostles? No, they're in Jerusalem. Now those who were scattered went about hiding in holes and having private Bible studies. No, that's not what it says. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Huge, huge. We see here, and we understand that God's providential hand is at work in history. How do we know this? Because we have the Bible. So you say, why did you put that word in your observation, number one? Well, number one, because the rest of the Bible teaches us, and we'll see here in just a moment, as I will reference you to Revelation 1, 4, and 5 here, that God providentially rules the kings of the earth. There is nothing outside the rule of Jesus. Jesus has not dropped the scepter of His rule. There has been a counter kingdom started in the rebellion, the kingdom of darkness, and there is conflict and there is war in the fall, but Jesus hasn't stopped ruling. Jesus hasn't stopped having control over all things. So God in His providence has allowed the situation to come about in which Stephen has been martyred and Saul is overseeing his execution and now there is an outbreak of opposition against the community of the kingdom of God. And they were scattered. They were scattered. Now you get to keep in mind here. You have to keep in mind the scattering of the church is no accident nor is it a tragedy. You're going to get that Acts 19 and find there are disciples gathered at Ephesus because of this. Because of what has happened in Acts 2 and because of what's happening in Acts 8, this peace of being His witnesses to the end of the earth is going to bear fruit later on. Right? This is no accident and it is no tragedy. It is God being gracious in history to move His people to the mission. This is huge. Now, this isn't a church history class, and this isn't time for classroom study, but as a teacher, I have to make you aware of church history. Historically, the church has only moved when prompted by difficulty or great awakenings. 
And in our history, there's only been two great awakenings here. Historically, the church moves through opposition. How did the church spread in the first three centuries? Persecution. How did it spread after the church took root? It spread through barbarians invading and the church going underground and losing its comfort and having to make disciples. There was a line drawn between those who followed Jesus because Jesus had something to offer and those who loved Jesus and followed Jesus because He's the King of the universe. Those who followed Jesus because Jesus gave them comfort and former pagans' temples to meet in as churches dropped off. Those who followed Him went underground and started making disciples of barbarians until they converted them. And then guess what happened? They got comfortable again. And then there was these crazy Vikings who came and pillaged and burned everything and were it not for Patrick and his disciples in Ireland and how the Irish saved civilization, historically true and accurate, were it not for that great underground persecuted work, you might not be here, but God in His grace preserved a remnant. And guess what God did with the Vikings? He made disciples out of them through those persecuted Christians. And we see historically over and over and over again that exporting of the kingdom of God happens through either great awakenings, but by majority difficulty and opposition to the kingdom, which draws lines between those who really follow Jesus and those who don't really care to follow Jesus. And we're going to see an example of that in our text today. So we see here that this persecution that arises against the church is not an accident and it's not a tragedy. It's part of the strategic plan of God to mobilize His people. Why? Because there's something to be mobilized too. It's called the Great Commission. It's discipling the nations. It's planting churches, which is part of discipling the nations. It's making disciples here and there simultaneously. And that often will not happen until prompted. Because we as fallen creatures don't want to move. We like ease. We like comfort. And when we're comfortable, we don't move. But God in His grace allows this difficulty and brings it upon them. And they are scattered. And we learn here that even Saul is dragging people off and committing them to prison. Verse 4, but those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Why did they do that? Because Jesus told them to. No rocket science here. No exegetical hocus pocus we have to do with the text. Jesus said, make disciples. Well, I guess we better go and do what Jesus said to do because things have fallen apart here. Nowhere else to go. They've taken our homes, taken our place, so I guess we got to go somewhere else. Well, what are we going to do? Better make some disciples. Why? Because Jesus said to. So they're scattered, and what do they do? They preach the Word. What do we do with this? Well, number one, belief. Remember, the past few weeks I've told you that expectations and beliefs are practical application. Not everything is something you necessarily have to do with your hands and feet. Sometimes it's getting your expectations and your beliefs in order. Well, here's our first application of this passage here. What do we do with this? You need to believe. You need to believe that the course of history is in the hands of King Jesus. Revelation 1, 4-5. Grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of kings on earth. You believe that? 
Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you do, then you must believe Jesus rules kings. If you believe that, that will transform how you engage nations and peoples. There is no opposition King Jesus hasn't ruled over. Isn't that awesome? Just go read your Old Testament. God makes arrows fly and find their targets. We often, it's easy to not read King's Chronicles and Samuel. Right? Because stories about bad kings and good kings. Those are the testimonies of the Lord that the psalmist tell us, give us instruction and teach us. It is the ruler of the universe that makes arrows fly and find their targets. It's the ruler of the universe who causes this king to come at this time to fulfill his word he made back there. You believe that? Believe that? I'm asking you a question, Three Rivers Church. Do you believe that? If we do, it has to transform our engagement, does it not? It changes everything. When we have the confidence and believe and know through faith in Jesus Christ that He is ruling the kings of the earth, then it changes our expectations. It changes that what comes our way has not been accidental, nor is it tragic, but it is Jesus working strategically for His glory and our joy. That may affect your ranting in social media. It may affect your ability to relax and engage and make disciples and, and God forbid, pray. Right? Enter that quiet place where nobody sees how spiritual you are but Jesus. And He who sees in secret will reward you openly. Believe that. Number two, believe that Jesus delights in saving the hardest of the hard, like Saul, who are one day going to be transformed into Paul. This is going to lead you to love and serve those who are your enemies, not hate them. What did Jesus teach us to do? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Did he not say that? Are we not followers of Jesus? Therefore, we should pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. Not rant against them. You see, the reality is for many of us in the West, we've been duped into believing our salvation comes through a political party. That's idolatry, rebellion, and sin. Do you hear me? Our salvation comes through Jesus alone, the ruler of kings on earth. And God likes to save former persecutors of Christians and turn them into apostles. Who else is going to have an inside track except to Paul? So what does he do? In God's good plan and his elective purposes, he selected Saul, who he's going to knock down one day on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute Christians. He's going to reveal himself and he's going to be transformed and he's going to be the great Paul. You think there are some ISIS members Jesus won't give dreams and visions to? Hmm? You think there aren't some... LGBT advocates who Jesus won't transform and make into apostolic leaders of His kingdom to make disciples? You think He won't do that? Oh, you best bet He will. 
He saves the hardest of the hard. <laughs> he does. You're looking at one of them. Not of any effort on my own. Not of anything I sought, but of His grace alone. And so therefore believe that Jesus delights in saving the hardest of the hard. Believe Jesus came to seek and to save the... Right? Believe that? Believe that? Who did Jesus spend His time with? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite? And who did He get persecuted by for who He spent time with? The religious elite. Jesus spent time with the outcasts and the hardest of the hard. And He transformed them. And then He sent us to do the same. And yet somehow we twist that message into be comfortable, hang out around people who won't soil me. Don't hear, do not hear me advocating for you and going go to lay down your convictions. No. Jesus never compromised the truth when He hung out with sinners. Never. He preached the kingdom. Read the text carefully. He spoke the truth. But He took the truth to the sick. Did He not? Why do we think our job's any different? We want to keep them out. And Jesus didn't say that, did He? No. Believe Jesus likes saving the hardest of the hard. Some of our greatest preachers in the next 20 years might not be people sitting in this room, but people right now in the middle of the darkness that Jesus will bring out of the darkness into light. Huh? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be cool if we were just to stop for them and God allowed us to train them and send them? Yeah, that'd be all right. Number three, we need to believe that God can use hardship to mobilize His people to multiply and make disciples. We need to believe that. That leads us to understanding that we aren't to necessarily reject hardship. Now listen, don't hear a sick desire for pain. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about recognizing that if Jesus brings difficulty, it's for His glory and our joy. It's for the advancement of His kingdom. Believe He can use hardship to mobilize His people. Often, that's how it happens. It's not comfort. Historically, the church does not do well in comfort. Because we take it for granted, right? It's just like a kid who gets a new toy on Christmas. It's awesome for a little while until they get sick of it. And they go and start playing with sticks and boxes. The more comfort we get, the more we take it for granted and go for sticks and boxes. And it is difficulty that mobilizes the people of God to, as Bob said, purify our desires, our wants, what we really believe is true, and whether or not we'll act on it. Number four, don't wait for difficulty to preach the gospel wherever you are. It's self-explanatory. Number five, embrace hardship. Listen to this. Embrace difficulty as an opportunity to grow in the Lord, not as an anomaly that's to simply be gotten through on the way to greater blessing. That's wordy, but hear it. Don't, don't miss the hardship as a good grace of God. We have a tendency in the West to view hardship as an anomaly. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's just something that we, we have a tendency to even view it as something Satan brought. And I just got to struggle through it to get to the mountaintop again. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us, even though 
What? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall, you know the little 23rd Psalm? Who leads them through the valley of the shadow of death? Oh, let's not read that. Let's move on. Let's not read that. Let's go read something else. That ain't what I wanted to hear. But sometimes the Lord leads us to the valley of the shadow of death, and we will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows through the valley of shadow of death. And I will fear no evil. Why? (laughs) The Lord is with me. So don't look at the hardship as this anomaly season. Understand it as a good grace of God to mobilize His people and to purify our desires so that we would see Jesus as most valuable. Philippians 1.10 is these crazy passages in the New Testament that we that's easy to skip over to get to another one we want to take out of context. You know, we like Philippians 4.13 means I can be the best basketball player. I can win the championship for the glory of Jesus. It ain't got nothing to do with it. I can be in peace inside the fellowship. And I can be content in the middle of hardship. Why? Philippians 4.13. Right? Philippians 1.10 is one of those passages we kind of like, we don't want to read this, but he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. You don't need to know the power of resurrection unless you're what? Dead. On the way to dying. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, here's the deal. We never become like Jesus until we start acting like Jesus. And we don't start acting like Jesus until we really need Jesus. We don't really need Jesus until we in that moment it's like, oh God, Jesus, help me. Right? And so He is good to take us into those moments to purify and refine and set us on mission. Set us on mission. And then we know the power of the resurrection. And we know fellowship with Him in those sufferings because He is with us. His rod and His staff, they comfort us. Six, know that the church may be entering a season and time of difficulty in the West. I put a little link to an an article here about uh, California Christian colleges and universities being challenged about their stances on who they admit into the school based on religious preferences. We would look at that and say that they have a right to do that. Any institution, any private institution has a right, right? To allow certain people in and not allow certain people in, right? We, we, would, we would affirm that. That's called freedom. Right? A Christian college and university would not hire a person who's practicing an alternative lifestyle, right? Because it doesn't match with the mission of the school. We would refer to that as freedom. Well, there are laws now beginning to challenge those things so that Christian colleges and universities and schools may have to, by law, break their religious beliefs in order to integrate people into the system. This is an interesting time. What are we going to do? We want to keep our tax-exempt status or we want to follow Jesus, right? I mean, it, it raises some interesting questions. How do we make disciples? How do we not separate ourselves from so as to not be cut off, but how do we also at the same time protect what we believe to be valuable? Brings up some interesting questions, doesn't it? It's an interesting time for the church. And what we've got to recognize is that God has brought us to this point. This is no accident. It's no tragedy. It's a ripe season for the church to make disciples. 
And oh, for wisdom to engage, Scripture's well known, the testimonies of the Lord, clear, giving direction so that we know what to do in a time like this. I promise you, it comes not by listening to the political pundits, but by listening to God and His Word, wisely applying His truth, winsomely, gently, lovingly, truthfully, boldly. Those aren't opposed. They go together, bringing Jesus to bear in our culture. Interesting time, church. What will we do? How will we respond? It's no tragedy. It's no accident. We are here by God's good grace, and it's His hand to mobilize the people of God to make disciples. We may be facing times when to uphold what we believe or biblical standards will cost us something. And that's okay. Seventh, and I need to learn, move on to the next point because I'm really getting behind. I knew this when I was typing these out. I'm like, I'm going to get hung right here. And it's going to take most of the time. But, oh well. We have to learn how to operate in the public square without compromising truth. We have drawn false lines. And we think in order, to con- in order to work in the public square, we have to give up on truth. Paul never did that in Acts. And we're going to see that as his example. Paul was able to operate in the public square, and he did so never once compromising what he believed. Never. Never did he do that. As a matter of fact, it got him in trouble a lot. But he still worked in the public square. And he did so with full permission. He never did it undercover. Never did it hidden. He did it in plain, open sight. And he never compromised what he believes. Christians, we have to figure out how to do that. Many of us are afraid of that, one. Number two, many of us have falsely believed that if we do that, we have to give up something that is true. We don't. This is going to require backbone, courage, resolve, conviction, Winsomeness, kindness, gentleness, love of enemies. Observation number two. You need to speed up. You need to move like Jehu through the streets of Jerusalem. I love Jehu in the Old Testament. He's just a beast. He moved quickly and so I'm going to move like Jehu. Philip, who's a normal guy, goes to the outcasts the Samaritans. And the power of the kingdom is put on display in his ministry as evidence of Jesus' kingdom. Look at Acts 8, 5 to 8, and then verse 12. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now remember, who's Philip? You've got to go back to Acts 6, right? Acts 7. Philip is just one of the regular guys who is acting wisely, living a holy life, and was appointed by the church to help deal with the distribution of food to folks who needed it. Just a normal guy. Not an apostle. Not a ministry professional. He's a dude that's walking with the Lord and has been appointed by the church to help give food out. You got it? Normal dude. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news, whoa, they believed. He preached the good news and they believed. 
He preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Crazy. Normal dude, through the good providential hand of God, is scattered, and he just happens to go down to Samaria. You might think that's an accident. Or does Acts 1-8 tell us that's God's plan? Remember when I, I keep bringing up every week Acts 1-8? That's on purpose. Because Acts 1-8 is the framework. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Philip, this is no accident. This is, this is a beautiful thing about the providence of God. God often leads when you are unaware that He is leading. Ideas and thoughts come to mind that feel benign. And we just simply act on them. And we find that God put us in the right place at the right time. That's really good news, by the way, for us. Jesus isn't asking us to be able to see the future. He's not asking us to be special. He's simply saying, go do what I've given you to do. Listen to me. Obey me. I'll put you in the right place at the right time. Philip, normal dude. Walking with the Lord, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Serving people in the church. Get scattered, heads down to Samaria, and lo and behold, he preaches. And what do they do? They believe, and great signs and wonders happen. Isn't that awesome? Philip's a normal guy, not a ministry professional. Persecution made opportunity for Philip to engage the Samaritans. He preached, saw powerful signs and wonders. They listened and believed and followed Jesus and followed him in baptism. What do we do with this? Number one. Recognize this. Believe that the kingdom does not need superheroes. The gospel is the story of the superhero who is Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask us to go be anything other than what we are. And what he does is he puts his spirit in Philip's and sends them. And when they preach the gospel, he saves people. That, that's normal. That's that's. That's Acts is the, one of the glorious things Acts is doing is letting us see with our eyes that God takes His Spirit, fills normal people, they preach the gospel, God saves people. That is to be normal. Believe we are not in need of superheroes. Jesus is the only superhero. The gospel of the kingdom is powerful. When the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed by people walking with Jesus, Jesus saves people. Know this, number two, all of us have access to the powerful gospel of the kingdom and the filling of the powerful Holy Spirit. Nobody in this room, if you believe the gospel, nobody has withheld from them the Holy Spirit and everything at His disposal to put the gospel on display. Remember I told you on the front end, I'm not going to rescue us from passages that talk about demons and supernatural signs and wonders. Listen. I've seen this stuff with my own eyes in other countries. And we come back here and say, geez, why don't we see this stuff here? And I've, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. It's because we just don't obey the text. It's very important to recognize you have the same access to Holy Spirit and the same gospel Philip preached. The question is, will we walk in the fullness of the Spirit, preach the gospel, make disciples? I promise you, when we do, the supernatural takes place. Nothing more supernatural than seeing a person in the kingdom of darkness come into the kingdom of light. Nothing more supernatural. And I'm telling you, unless you do good evangelism, just do evangelism. Just let Jesus clean it up. 
If you do terrible evangelism, Holy Spirit will clean that up. Just do something. Just do something with what you know. And watch the light turn on in dead eyes. It's the coolest thing you will ever see. That's miraculous. He can raise dead to life. He can give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He can heal and make right. He does that. But it doesn't recognize this. Point number three, those things are not the point. They are rather byproducts of the kingdom taking enemy-held territory. We will see that kind of stuff when we actually take enemy-held territory. Again, one of the greatest examples in your lifetime is the fact that the city has given us what they've given us in South Rome. That does not happen. But it did here. That's miraculous. Be in awe at the gospel of the kingdom. Right? Right? Yes. Yes. But those things are not the point. They're byproducts of the kingdom of God taking enemy-held territory. So therefore, if you want to see the miraculous, don't pray for the miraculous. Go make disciples. Preach the gospel. And as the kingdom of God takes enemy-held territory, you will see the miraculous. It's just what happens. Number three. Fake, com- fake conversions really happen. And they have to be dealt with prophetically as Satan fights against Jesus' kingdom. We see here an, an, an instance of a fake conversion. Now listen, church, this is where ministry can get messy. God gave us an example of messy, ugly ministry on the inside. This doesn't happen on the outside. This happens on the inside. Let's look at it. Fake conversions really happen, and they have to be dealt with prophetically as Satan fights against Jesus' kingdom rule. Acts 8, 9 to 13, and then verse 18 to 24. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now you get the picture? This guy is in tune with the spiritual world. That stuff's real, y'all. It is real, it is real, it is real. And many in your town know it, and they're undercover. You just need to know that. You need to know that. The demonic and the satanic are not absent from Roman Floyd County. The belief in the occult is not absent from Roman Floyd County. Okay? Here's a guy that's practicing that stuff. And he amazed the people of Samaria. And he says about himself that he's somebody great. They all paid attention to him. You see, he's got a crowd. From the least to the greatest saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. Now you see what's happening. He's practicing magic, taking the name of God and making himself great with it. And they paid attention to him. He's got a crowd following him. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Mm. But when they believed, uh uh-oh, but when they believed, this this little word, but, is connecting this previous information with this new information is a magician acting in the name of God got a following chances are this is his living this is his income we're going to see in Acts 16 similar situation with a little slave girl who's got a demonic spirit who tells fortunes and her masters are using her for gain chances are this guy's doing the same thing he's making money here okay but 
when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. That's a big deal. And I don't have time to deal with the implication of baptism here. But baptism, simply, public profession of following Jesus. When you go public that you've changed teams, that's a big deal. For them now, who's calling Simon, the power of God called great, to now be baptized and say, no, Jesus is great. They just shifted teams. And what just happened? Simon lost his following. Verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. Sounds pretty good. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now look at verse 18 to 24. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through laying on of the apostles' hands, because what has happened is the apostles have heard that Samaria has believed the gospel. Big deal. That's a very big deal. So they send two guys to investigate. They lay their hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon sees this, and it blows his mind. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Why? Why do you think? Why do you think? Well, let's look. Saying, give me this power also so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let's let the Bible impugn his motives, okay? Let's let the Bible do that because it does. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, oh man, I'm glad you're passionate about Jesus. No. Peter recognizes what's going on here. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter. Well, he's being rough with the church member, yes. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you're in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. Did Simon repent? No. Pray for me to the Lord that none of what you said may come upon me. Not change my heart because I think I can buy God and buy a following with money. No. Pray for me that none of that bad stuff happens. Where's Simon's heart? Simon's heart is in his following, in his stature, and in his income. And he's lost it. And he is doing everything he can to get in with the crowd that now looks like they have the power. The kingdom of God is taking enemy-held territory, and that's going to come with spiritual battles. Here's a quick little story Bob tells in, in Lessons in the East about a pastor in India. He said, very often when we hold a gospel meeting, a demon-possessed person comes to the front of our meeting and dances. I'm sorry, a demon-possessed person comes to the front of our meeting and dances. This is a direct challenge to God's authority in front of the people. We have to drive off the evil spirit immediately. Unless people realize the power of the Holy Spirit, they will not understand that our God is more powerful than the evil spirits. You see, what happened here is the kingdom of darkness is fighting back against the kingdom of God and its instrument. Simon is the key person doing the fighting, wanting to buy this power so he can get his business back and get his power back and make his name great. And the apostles prophetically speak to him, call out the sin, and deal with it and set him aside so that the kingdom of God is not hindered. See, Simon tries to buy the ability to manipulate the Holy Spirit. Simon misunderstands because he's not a follower of Jesus. He thinks the power to summon the Spirit lies in the apostles. What he doesn't know is John 3. 
that the Spirit moves as He wills. And that what He is doing is giving evidence to the apostles of the inclusion of the Samaritans into the kingdom of God as their equal with them. Simon simply wants the power. And they have to rebuke him harshly. We're to learn here in verse 24, he was full of bitterness. Probably because he's lost his magic business and the crowd that was bound to him in sin. And he gives his motives away when he requests that they pray that nothing terrible happened to him rather than actually repenting. So what do we do with this? Number one, we're going to have to deal with people who are into Jesus for what they can get out of Jesus rather than surrender themselves and their agenda and everything to Jesus. Listen carefully here. I was real careful about what I said here because in the West, we're far too sophisticated to play the magic game unless you're just into the occult. Our magic comes in much more subtle forms of things we buy into above the kingdom of God that we use to manipulate ourselves, our mind, and our world to our advantage as opposed to wholly selling out to Jesus and His kingdom. You see, we're going to have to discern the difference between people who use Jesus for power, personal, or whatever, and those who truly follow Jesus... And be careful to keep ourselves in a position to speak prophetically to them. I'm going to just one example here. And I'm going to be very careful. I'm going to try to be super careful. This situation sounds a lot like our political landscape. You see, being a Christian is a good instrument in the hands of people wanting to gain, maintain, and expand power. What politician running hadn't said they're a Christian? Why? Is it because Jesus is really that important to them? Well, heck no. Look at their actions. What did the Lord say? You will know them by their fruit. And if the fruit is bad, Jesus said, this isn't rocket science, it's just Jesus. He said it, it's in the manual. If the fruit's bad, the tree's bad. Not rocket science. And we are the dumbest we bite the hook, line, sinker, float, and swim off, thinking we found something good. No, you didn't. You had a bad apple tree. And I'm a cross but listen, I ain't I, listen, if you're wondering, I belong to no party. I follow Jesus. He's my king. I'm a citizen of a kingdom first. Everything else falls way down the line. I'm not even none of that tenth. You understand? You need to be the same way. You need to be the same way. Because here's what happens. Our system uses the faith as a tool to pander to us, to get us to help keep them in power. And all kinds of fools are buying into it. Even meeting as advisory boards in the name of Jesus for a fool. My favorite, oh God, get, help me Jesus. My favorite this week is a president of an evangelical Christian university standing in the office of one with the Playboy cover behind him that he appeared on. Have you seen that picture? It's all over the interwebs. Look at it. And that's what we're giving ourselves to. Really? Really? Listen, people will use Jesus to advance their cause. We must be careful not to bite. 
but keep ourselves in a position to speak prophetically the truth of God's word. Because the kingdom, oh, help me, Jesus. The kingdom is more valuable than our country. Listen, I'm not being unpatriotic. Don't hear that. What you need to hear is, I follow, you should, we should follow Jesus first. Bow the knee to Him. We pledge allegiance to Christ alone. Right? In Christ alone our hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song, my my cornerstone, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest droughts and storms. Listen, this nation will fall. Because when Revelation 19 happens and Christ returns, we will bow the knee either in worship or for submission. But when Christ returns, all kingdoms fall. Because we just read where Jesus rules the kings of the earth. Listen, listen, our job is to follow Jesus first. Have discernment, dear Christian. Have discernment through the scriptures to be careful to not follow this matter of fact, W.A. Criswell. You ever know, heard of W.A. Criswell? He nerds, there's a few of us. He's dead. Criswell formed Criswell Bible College out in Dallas, Texas. Here's what Criswell said here. He called this practice of a person seeking to use Jesus for power, he coined the phrase simony. Simony. That's a great word. Simony. And many today practice simony. Using Jesus as their means to their ends. And by the way, it doesn't have to be political. It could be small little private things where we have a little idol. Physical well-being. Physical advancement. And that takes the place of the community of the kingdom following Jesus. But we put Philippians 4.13 on it and Jesus is going to help me do it. Amen? No. You have an idol. Repent. Believe the gospel. Right? All kinds of things we can put up there and practice simony using Jesus as a means of gain. Jesus is not a means of gain. He's the king of the universe. And one day he's returning and he'll be sitting on a white horse and tatted on his thigh will be written king of kings and lord of lords and he will have a robe dipped in blood and it's not his. Revelation 19. He's coming again. Right? And so that's where our allegiance lies. So be careful be careful, be careful. Finally, we need to wrap this up and get done. Last observation. The gospel of the kingdom, this verse 14 to 17 and verse 25, makes peace between former enemies. And it is witnessed to here by Jews laying hands on Samaritans and the Spirit being given to display the equality of Samaritans and Jews in the kingdom. Verse 14 to 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Why? This is a big deal. Don't have time to give you Samaritan history, but Samaritans are half-breeds. Jews who were taken captive in the Assyrian conquest, and they bred in with other unbelievers, people who aren't Jewish, and they were resettled back in the northern parts of Israel. And those from Judah, the tribe of Judah, viewed them as inferior religiously, practically, in every other way. Hate them. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan is a big deal. Because A, she's a Samaritan. B, she's a woman. All kinds of problems. But Jesus went out of his way to speak to the person that nobody else wanted to speak to. Jesus told the story, right, about the good Samaritan. Why? Because he's wanting people to understand. The people of the elite status went by on the other side of the road. The one y'all hate is the one who came and did God's will. And that's who I'm going to preach to. All right? And so the fact that the Samaritans have believed the gospel is a big deal. 
And so what we see here in this passage is the Holy Spirit hadn't been given to them like happened to them in Acts 2. Well, why might that be? Well, because Peter and John's going to go and they're going to do something big. When they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for He had not yet fallen in them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid... This, this is... It would touch them. It would touch Samaritans, nasty, half-breeded religious pagans. Touch them. Nasty. But when they laid their hands on them, what happened? They received the Holy Spirit. This is big. This is big. Verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The gospel of the kingdom makes peace between former enemies. You see, it's no accident that the Lord withheld the Spirit for the Samaritans, for a couple of Jews who didn't like them to go and touch them. Actually, physically, physical touch is important here. It, it, it says a lot. It says a ton. We don't touch what we think is nasty, right? When we touch something, we are giving affirmation to it that it's okay. So for them to lay their hands on them, Jews who hated Samaritans, is saying that you are equal with me. And that is huge. And what did the Lord do? He testified to their inclusion in the kingdom by giving them the Spirit when the Jews touched them and prayed for them. This is big. This is key. This isn't a prescription for a second work of the Spirit. It's evidence given to the apostles that the kingdom makes no distinction between peoples coming into the kingdom. I have a big passage to read, and I'm not going to read it because we're out of time. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. What it basically says is God and the kingdom has taken two that were formerly separate and He's brought them together and made them one in Christ who is their head. And the hostile wall division between Jew and Gentile, slave and free has been broken down and we've made one in Christ. This glorious truth of the gospel is what used to be enemies, God has made one. This is the foundation off of which we should seek and strive to have unity in the kingdom between people who do not look like us. What do we do with this? Well, number one, the gospel of the kingdom is to go to all nations, not just our own, and we must expect this and make provision for it. Listen, Three Rivers Church, this is going to push us hard. Because what we're not going to be allowed to do as we read the scriptures is be okay with being monochromatic as a majority. We can't be. We can't be comfortable not being diverse in our population. Eventually, eventually division and separation between races has to be addressed. And you've heard this some in the things we've talked about because the gospel demands that unity happen between peoples who are in the kingdom of God. Listen, this isn't fake peace. Don't hear fake peace. Don't hear incorporate false beliefs. No, no, we're talking about when you come into the kingdom and believe the gospel, we're one. That's Bible. Meaning it's going to take some practical steps, some things to do to change. Make sense? And we have to make provision for that. Adam's thinking through some things. I'm thinking through some things. I want you to be thinking through some things. You need to make sure when you reach out, you don't just reach out to people who look like you. Right? Which means we have to start acting like missionaries here. You may need to learn to speak a different language. You may need to learn to communicate in a different fashion. You may need to learn to look different. Right? I need to do that. We all need to do that. We need to recognize that distinctions in the kingdom are sin and we cannot make them. 
We need to anticipate and prepare for integration of those good things that God wants to do in the community of the kingdom on the outside of us. How cool. Let me dream for a moment. Mind if I dream? Let me dream for a minute. Not now, because we ain't ready. We ain't ready. We are not ready. Maybe we will be in the future, but can you imagine what it would look like since God gave us a stinking elementary school? That one day, just possibly, we could look multi-ethnic and that God would transplant this campus over in the building He gave us? And just practically, I mean, can I dream? Can I dream? What if we paid ourselves rent? Oh. Isn't that fun? Like, we'd, we have two organizations. So this organization paid the other one, we have rent. So, and that's not illegal. Isn't that awesome? So we're cutting costs in half. That just makes me giddy on the inside. Like, I'm laughing like a child. Oh, smart. That's awesome. We didn't plan that. That's totally the Lord. Isn't that awesome? But imagine what it would look like, too, if, 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 we, if we were really there and, man, making an economic, spiritual, social impact in the middle of South Rome. I'm not saying that's... We're, we are not ready. We are not ready. But maybe one day we could be. Wouldn't that be awesome if we were? Wouldn't that be cool? That there would not... Nobody would look at Three Rivers and go, White Church... Right? They wouldn't look at three rivers and go black church, Hispanic church. They'd look at three rivers and go kingdom. Kingdom. That's, that's, that's where my heart is. Because the text tells us it has to be so. He did it in such a way that the apostles had to go, man, we've got to touch them. And by the way, it's not going to go away for Peter because we've got to read Galatians. Peter's going to look good on the outside. Yeah, I like those Gentiles. They're all right. But when other Jews come around, he withdraws from them. And Paul has to rebuke him about it. It's like, no, no, no. No, no, we're not keeping up pretensions for those on the outside. Don't look good for, for the Gentiles. And when the Jews show up, start pretending like you something you're not. Uh-uh. And Paul rebukes Peter. All right? So this is going to be a challenge for the church for years to come. This will be a challenge for us. But we either believe the gospel or we don't. And if we believe the gospel, it's going to demand some things from us. It's going to push us to make disciples. And disciples don't look like us. And we've got to learn to be the kingdom of God. That makes me real excited. Right? But the text teaches us how to walk in that way. And you know, finally, you know how we end. We worship, right? Because that's what people in the kingdom do. We worship. We worship Jesus for these things. Listen, church, he's instructed us today. It's in the manual. We know what to do. There's not an absence of knowledge on what to do. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to worship him for it. His word is clear. It is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And let's worship him for that, okay? Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, pray that you'll help us to, to worship well today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would tear down things that would keep us from singing to you. Um, it is clearly part of your nature that we would make much of you in song. For you are a God who, Jesus, shout. Zephaniah 3.17 teaches us. You delight in your people. You sing over your people. Song comes out of your nature and you've given us song. And so, Lord, we want to worship you with that this morning. And we pray that you'd be glorified. We pray that the fruit of lips that bless your name would be the result of this time. 
Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to soar as we look ahead to what the kingdom looks like in Roman Floyd County. Pray that you would cause our souls to take delight in you. And I pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. Pray that you would hear our worship and be pleased. Lord, I pray that you move in any way in such a way necessary that you make your name great and bring us to make your name great. Pray that you'd bring to repentance. Pray you'd bring reconciliation. Pray you'd heal what's broken. Most importantly, bring great glory to your name. 